The replacements formed in 1979 in the cold northern city of Minneapolis. Originally a punk band, they went on to help pioneer the very idea of college rock and alternative in America. A shambolic collection of booze, drugs, and personal problems, they forged a legacy through tragedy, triumph, and a lot of frigid Minnesota nights. By the end, their sound was a million miles away from where it started, but their whole catalog is filled with rock and roll gems. They were chaos personified. The Beatles of the Midwest, if no one had ever listened to the Beatles. Today on The Mix is In, we're talking about the one, the only, The Replacements. A couple years ago, I went on a trip to Minneapolis with my friend Steve. We went out at the behest of a podcast called The Rights to Ricky Sanchez. It was a Sixers podcast. We were going out to see the Sixers play the Timberwolves. We were specifically going to Minnesota or Minneapolis because Robert Covington and Dario Saric, who were popular Sixers players, been traded there a few months before for malcontent Jimmy Butler. Now, that's a whole separate podcast, but part of the reason I was excited for the trip, because I hadn't been to Minneapolis since I was very young, and I was excited to be in the place where the replacements came from, and I wanted to see what I could make of that, being in this city that's so integral to the story of this band. So who are the replacements? Now, how did we get here? Well... I came to him a little bit backwards. I was a Paul Westerberg fan in high school, mostly on the strength of his two uh, two songs on the singles soundtrack and uh, his album 14 Stories and the song World Class Fad. I loved his wordplay and I loved the way he took feelings and ideas, you know, even at that what you would call late in the game for him. Well, not getting really late, he's still putting out albums, but he was a known commodity by that point, but not to me, really. For my money, I, I knew him as kind of this figure in, in where you assumed everybody came from at that time, which was the Seattle scene. Uh, but he wasn't. He was a guy from the Midwest, and he got his name, made his name, uh, in a band called The Replacements. He was a bit of a Shane McGowan-like figure, I guess, in that nobody really expected him to stick around very long, but he managed to survive the experience. And I didn't, I didn't come to the replacements till much later. Uh, this was back in, I don't know, when 14 songs came out, 93, 92. But years later, I worked at a Borders in Delaware and decided I'd heard so much about them at that point. Because, you know, I was working the music desk. I read a lot of magazines like Mojo and, you know, all these glossy magazines that talked about music and music history. And the replacements would come up a lot. And I didn't really know much about them. So I picked up a copy of Pleased to Meet Me. I don't want to say I fell in love immediately 
but there was something there that I could see and that I could hear that really clicked with me and it really spoke to me in the same way that the Paul Westerberg music that I liked did. And I said, okay, well, what's the one they talk about? And that's, well, that's Let It Be. And I got Let It Be and I finally think I kind of understood at least a little bit. It's a hard band to say you understand, especially, you know, when you're getting into them in the aughts rather than in 1984 when they were at the peak of their dubious powers. So anyway, so let's let's get into it a little bit. Let's talk about this band, and we'll get to my mix at the end, like we do, where we put together 10 songs. Today's mix is going to be my just my personal favorites, because they're such a distinct and different and personal band that trying to say, well, this is the 10 best songs of the replacements feels even more arrogant than most of the things I do when it comes to music. Uh, and it would feel wrong, because they're they're not about their their 10 greatest songs or all this stuff what the replacements are about are that connection between bob stinson and tommy stinson sitting on a roof and and looking at you drinking warm beer on the cover of replacements and how you were able to to feel like that you they you just knew that they understood so who are the replacements well they started out a couple of different versions but the classic lineup is the lead singer paul westerberg the guitarist Bob Stinson, the bassist Tommy Stinson, and the drummer Chris Mars. Down through the years, in the later stages of the replacement's career, Bob Stinson was replaced with Slim Dunlap. And at the very jagged end, Chris Mars was replaced by a guy named Steve Foley. So, so how did they come to be? Well, Bob Stinson, when he was 19, had... Had kind of a troubled youth. He'd been in, I believe he'd been in a juvenile hall and, you know, rested and was a bit of a drinker. And he saw his younger brother, Tommy, who was 11 at the time, Bob Stinson was 19, kind of starting down that same path. So in order to try and keep him off the road that Bob had gone down, he gave him a bass guitar. And then they began playing and their buddy, Chris Mars, who played drums, began to play with him, and they formed a band called Dog Breath. Dog Breath liked to play Yes covers and Ted Nugent and really just get high and drink at practices and mess around. Paul Westerberg was, was not really part of their scene completely, though he was friends with Chris Mars. At the time, he was working as a janitor for Senator David Durenberger. And on his way home from work each day, he'd be walking home and he'd hear this band practice. And he'd stop and listen, and eventually he would be hiding in the bushes and listening to him every day. Dog Breath was, you know, oblivious to their future hanging out in the, the bushes. And auditioned a bunch of different singers, including a hippie who just sat down cross-legged and read the lyrics off a sheet. And then finally Chris Mars invited Paul over to, to kind of jam with him. Paul played the guitar as well. And it, Paul was delighted to find out that this was this band he had been listening to. And kind of got with him, but he wasn't immediately like he didn't become the singer it wasn't like he walked in the room and said hi guys this is this is our four piece now no they eventually got a, another singer and after a little bit the practice a few practices i guess paul took the guy aside and said yeah you know the band hates you they think you suck and the guy quit and westerberg took over and that was how the replacements were born in a ramshackle basement in minneapolis I guess you would say it's sort of a classic story of how bands start. They played a little bit together, and then they got a gig at a church. 
and showed up and were drunk and never got to play. So that, and they got banned from the church, and that was kind of their first, their semi-famous gig at, at that point. I'm going to interject here. So the first two episodes we've done were on the Interrupters and Hollis Brown, who were, I would say, you know, their current bands, they're, they're a little bit smaller in history and stature. We're going to lean into the history a little bit more on this episode than we have in the past. So if, you know, you like the first two episodes and you want to get right to the mix, you, you can skip ahead, but we're going to talk about this band a lot. So buckle up. So anyway, so they started playing together and they called themselves, they were struggling for names and they started out calling themselves the in, uh, Impotence. Eventually they got a gig for that and it didn't really go down either. And they finally changed their name to The Replacements. And Chris Mars described it like this. He said, Like maybe the main act doesn't show and instead the crowd has to settle for an earful of us dirtbags. And it's a pretty accurate description of The Replacements and their, their style of play. Uh, so the band changed their name to The Replacements, got together, here they were, and they recorded a four-song demo that they put in the hands, eventually, of Peter Jesperson. Jesperson managed a record store called OAR Folk Joke Opus, and I'm probably saying that wrong, but that's how it's spelled, which was a big punk rock record store in Minneapolis and kind of one of the local main music hangouts. It was one of the places where everybody got together and talked about music. Bit of a hub for that sort of things. And Peter Jesperson, along with Paul Stark and Charlie Hallman, had also found Twin Tone Records, which was a local label. You know, real low rent stuff, but you know, when you're when you're in the punk scene, that's that's what you're looking for. You're looking for these guys who can just get you into a room, throw down some guitars and some drums and some screams and call it a day. And that's what Jesperson and Stark and Hallman were doing. So they got this demo to Jesperson. And if you ever read the great book by Michael Azarad called Our Band Could Save Your Life, which is about scenes from the American Indie Underground, 1981 to 1991, there's a whole chapter on the replacements. And in that, he, Peter Jesperson is quoted as saying, if I ever had a magic moment in my life, it was popping that tape in. I didn't even get through the first song before I thought my head was going to explode. From there, the replacements got on board with Twin Tone. Before they had even really played a complete gig, uh, they had this demo and, and Twin Tone, I, you don't want to say signed them, because Twin Tone didn't at that time actually sign them to a paper contract, which caused some problems later. But they, they got them, and after a couple of weeks, with this this label, they finally had their debut playing live as the replacements, and they got into a studio called Blackberry Way and started to record what would eventually become Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash. It took six months to record and a little bit longer to release because two, uh, Twin Tone didn't have any money. Listen, here's another thing. It's called Twin Tone. Uh, as a ska person, I'm going to call it Two Tone like five times in this, and I'll try to catch them and edit them out, but if you catch that... I know what I'm doing, right? I don't know what I'm doing, but it's just old habit. So anyway, so they recorded, sorry, Ma, I forgot to take out the trash at Blackberry Way Studio. Uh, it took six months, finally came out in 1981, and it's, it's a real shambolic punk record. When you think about what you think about with punk rock, you think about anger, resentment, you know, screaming at the system, hating what became before, you know, the 1977 clash stuff and, 
this permanent rage at the system and how everything works. And it's not really that. The sound is there. The sound is very punk. It's very kind of loud. It's not quite like Fugazi or something, which is more hardcore, but it's it's definitely a punk record. But the themes and the stuff that they're singing about is far more emotional and personal. They're not a political band. They never become one. And when you're in the punk rock scene, that's an odd thing to be. You think of the great punk rock bands, and you got your London Calling and God Save the Queen and pretty much everything Ian McKay ever did, or Jello Biafra. And this is just, it's its so far away from that. Maybe that's because they're, you know, from the Midwest, but it's different. And you listen to it, and it's not, I mean, although this is the same scene that, you know, produced Husker Du, so it's it's different, and it really sets the stage for a lot of their career and a lot of what Westerberg does, and that they're just a different kind of band that's a little bit hard to categorize. So they put out this punk record about sitting around and, you know, not having anything to do and nowhere to go, and they don't look punk, you know, they're denim or ratty, just, they look like just normal dudes, they're not shaved head, they've got long hair, so it's it's an odd fit. So after that, they recorded a song, played a song called Kids Don't Follow, and Jesperson heard it and was convinced that this was a hit. So he talked everybody into putting together an LP that would, or EP rather, that would become Stink. This was in June of 1982 it came out. If you listen to it, it's interesting. The, at the very beginning, there's a, they recorded some cops showing up and breaking up a rent party. And you hear a guy go, hey, fuck you, man. And that's apparently, at least rumor has it, Dave Perner, who's the lead singer for Soul Asylum, which was one of the other big bands that came out of this scene. So anyway, Jesperson was absolutely convinced that this was the song and that he would hand stamp all the record jackets if he had to, and that convinced him to put it out. So it's they put out Stink, and they were all hand stamped, and apparently a lot of it done with carved potatoes, which means you carve the, you know, the word stink into the potato put ink on it, stamp it on the page, and you keep doing that. And apparently this is the thing that people do. I don't know enough about stamping or, I guess, the Midwest or potatoes to know, but they definitely, this was how it was done. I don't even know what to say about that. I think it's great. I know that my copy of it is a later edition put out by, uh, when I you know, re-released one of these LP vinyl re-release box sets. So mine definitely wasn't done by Potato, but if you have the original one, it's much more organic than maybe you thought. So anyway, so they they hand stamp all these records, and Stink is very much a hardcore record. It's at least it's it's them trying to be a hardcore band and really fit in with Husker Du and the Husker Du set. And it look these are good records; these are enjoyable records, but there's a a internal dichotomy to it versus what you're sort of used to with those things and what they actually are, you know, because it's got that same emotional, lyrical quality to it. I guess we're more used to that now when you talk about emo and screamo and things like that, which aren't necessarily singing about politics and everything. But in 1982, <laughs> that's not what punk was and it's not what hardcore was and it's not what they were singing about. So it's it's an odd fit that maybe it's a little easier on the ears now than it was then. And it's still, again, it's very good. Kids Don't Follow is a good song. It's different. 
and it's different from what was around at the time. And again, that's going to be the theme that goes through this entire podcast and, and the, the replacement's career is that it's different. And there's not a, it, putting them into a category is hard. My, my buddy Mario and I argue quite a bit about the concept of genres. He's talked about he wants to open a music store where there's no genres, there's no separation. Everything is just in alphabetical order. I'm still, maybe I'm an old man or whatever, I'm still stuck in the concept of genres, and I like the ideas of being able to discover music because you're looking for a kind of music, and here's a band that does that rather than complete chaos. But the replacements are kind of hard to put in any of those genres. I mean, Stink is a hardcore record. But the follow-up, Hootenanny, is definitely not a hardcore record. They always have, you know, these fast, rough songs on all of these, but as you get into Hootenanny, Hootenanny was their follow-up. It came out in 1983, produced by Stark, who, who owned the label. They didn't quite get along with him. So it opens up with this song called Hootenanny, in which Westerberg, Chris Mars, and everybody switched instruments, and they play this off-key riffing nonsense, and then just said, nope. Side one, track one, and that's what you get. But when you listen to Hootenanny, what it really sounds like is the replacements starting to figure it out a little bit. I mean, they never really quite figure it out. That's, that's again, part of their charm is they're, that they're never the tightest band or vision of, of perfect rock and roll. But anyway, when you listen to Hootenanny, you, you can feel it coming, like there's something coming. It's not Hootenanny, it's... it's it's kind of like you 2 with Unforgettable Fire. You listen to Unforgettable Fire and the elements that would eventually make up their next albums and their great run that they have right after that are there, but it's not quite there. And that's what Hootenanny sounds like to me. There's good songs on it. I've listened to it. I enjoy it. If I were to say to somebody, yeah, the replacements are great here, go buy an album, it would absolutely not be Hootenanny. I know that that maybe is a little bit heretical, but like I said, I like it. It's good. It's got a lot of great tracks on it. But the one that if I were to tell somebody to go listen to the replacements and kind of try to understand the replacements or figure out who they are, it would be their next one, which is Let It Be which came out in 1984, and it's generally considered their best album. Their Sgt. Pepper, or their Pet Sounds, or their Exile on Main Street. Here's how Westerberg described it in Our Band Could Save Your Life. Now we're softening a little bit where we can do something that's a little more sincere without being afraid that someone's not going to like it, or the punks aren't going to be able to dance to it. And that's definitely Let It Be. There's piano on there in The Great Androgynous. There's mandolin on the album opener, I Will Dare. There's other instruments. Uh, I have in my notes that this is their first grown-up record. I'm not entirely sure that's accurate, because I don't think the band ever really completely grows up. I mean, maybe down the road a little bit. But what it is, is the replacements at least gaining some understanding of what is they want to be what they're good at and how they can do it. It didn't sell a metric ton. I watched a documentary about them called Color Me Obsessed, which is just a bunch of people talking about the replacements. It's great. If you like the band, it's absolutely worth watching. It's on Amazon Prime. But they talk about how this is 
you know, like Let It Be by the Beatles, if you handed this to someone, if somebody had never heard of the Beatles. And it's pretty accurate. This is, this is a classic album that has incredible, incredible tracks on it that is unique in what it does. It's unique in what it wants to do. And it, it's one of the definitive albums of the 80s for people who weren't listening necessarily to just Michael Jackson or, you know, whatever the, the more popular stuff was. And, I, and look, as a kid, I was listening to the more popular stuff. Don't, don't get me wrong. I didn't discover any of this shit until, you know, I started getting actually into real music not real music, when I started getting into, you know, becoming a bit of a music nerd in high school. So yeah, but Let It Be is one of those. It, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't even know. It's like The Queen is Dead by The Smiths or something like that, where it, it's this sonic boom for the people that heard it, but not that many people heard it. I mean, I guess you should start there or maybe finish there. I'm not even really sure. So anyway, it was the band's fourth album. It got them signed to a major label up in here up until now they had been on Twin Tone and they went from Twin Tone to Sire, which is a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. And then they put out Tim in October of nineteen eighty five. And Tim is the last album with Bob Stinson, the original guitarist, and the the main chaos agent in a very chaotic group. Tim is extraordinary in my book. The it's a little overproduced, I guess, but not to any kind of real major detriment. I This is a bit of a dividing line, and if you read stuff on the replacements or you watch stuff like Color Me Obsessed, and when I say read stuff, there's, there's books out on this band. One of the ones I read is called All Over But the Shouting, an oral history by Jim Walsh, and there's a more recent one called Trouble Boys, the True History of the Replacements by Bob Mayer. This is a bit of a dividing line for fans because the first four albums are the ones on the smaller label, the more, I don't want to say pure because it's not really purity, but they're, they're doing different things with their first four albums than they are in their last four albums. Good things, don't get me wrong, but there's people like uh, Patrick Stickles, uh, the lead singer of Titus Andronicus, is in this documentary and he talks about how they were just less interesting after they signed to a major label. And that's, that's always going to be the case. There's always going to be purists and people who grew up with them and for whom they they absolutely spoke to prior to this. And when you get a little bit more polished, you end up moving a little bit away from your original spot. And that's kind of what starts to happen with Tim. They never, it never goes to their head. They, this band never has any real success. Tim is a major label debut. It peaked at 183 on the Billboard charts. They got enough notoriety to appear on Saturday Night Live and kind of drunkenly play their way through Kiss Me on the Bus and an out-of-tune Bastards of Young and swearing and they get banned from the show. They're one of only five musicians to ever get banned from Saturday Night Live. You know, this haven of drugs and alcohol. They put out this album and this has got some real classics and when we get to the mix, it's very heavily represented. It Purists and, and longtime fans and people really deep into the replacements are probably not going to like my mix. Uh, I'll just say that right now, but we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get there. So anyway, so Tim comes out, and I'm going to read you a quote from Steve Hyden. Steve Hyden is a rock critic. I first discovered him when he was writing for Grantland way back, and he has since put out a couple of books that I absolutely love, and one of them is Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, and the other one is A History of Classic Rock, and I absolutely recommend both of them. They're dynamite. He's got a, a new one out 
with Steve Gorman. I don't have it in front of me. I apologize. The guy from Black Crows, and it's a history of the Black Crows. I haven't sat down and read yet, but I'm sure I'll enjoy because I like everything Hyden writes. So anyway, I remember back when he was writing for Grantland, he wrote about the replacements, particularly about their reunion back, I want to say 2012, 2013, thereabouts. Uh, and he wrote something that stuck with me. And I'm going to read this quote. Again, it's from the Grantland. I love rock and roll. And I was born in the Midwest somewhere between 1970 and 1980. So I'm especially susceptible to loggeria about how the Westbrook essentially invented the archetype that I attempted to emulate through my pre- throughout my pre-marriage 20s. The hard luck, hard drinking, and hard-headed small-town wiseacre who weeps in his beer to here comes a regular. All that sounds, all that stands between innocent bystanders and my lecture on how Tim is like Annie Hall for middle American males who waste away their youth in dirtbag taverns is a whiskey shot chased with a slug of scuzzy domestic beer. And I gotta say, that's pretty accurate. If you want to find the article, I, I suggest you do. It's worth reading. Uh, just Google Steve Hyden replacements Tim. And it's the, it should be the first result that comes up for you. It's a, it's a good article. Uh, more informative and more personal than what this particular podcast is going to be. So anyway, so Tim comes out and it, it is a, it's a big album. There's a couple of, there's one real anthem on it in Bastards of Young and there's Left of the Dial, Little Mascara, and then there's the slower, you know, Here Comes a Regular. And it's just, it's, I don't, it may be my favorite of their albums. It's hard to say. Their next album, Pleased to Meet Me, is probably that. The, certainly that, that three album run of Let It Be, Tim, and Pleased to Meet Me are my favorite of, of all the replacements. And you'll, you'll see in the mix. At this point, they still can't really manage a complete tour. We'll talk about their live performances in a minute because it's a big part of their mystique. Uh, but they're not, still not catching on completely. They're still not getting there despite these albums that critics love when the, all of these albums are just adored by critics to the point where they're the quintessential critics love us, but you know, nobody listens to us. Uh, so anyway, this is about the time when Bob Stinson gets kicked out of the band after just being too erratic. Stinson is heavy in drugs and booze, and he's always been kind of a weird dude who you just never know what you're going to get from night to night. And they finally decide that they want to be a little bit more on the ball they also, not too long after that, they fire Peter Jesperson, who's been their manager since the start. And it's reasonable to say without Jesperson that there would be no replacements. They, they certainly wouldn't, you know, be about to be putting out their sixth album or even probably be alive. Who knows? It mirrors The Clash a little bit when The Clash fired their original manager and got rid of Mick Jones. I mean, The Clash were never the same. The, the, replacements still have you know at least one classic album left in them but it mirrors that in that the the band's reputation and the way people look at them starts to shift a little bit without those guys and it gutted jesperson he's quoted in our band could save your life as saying i couldn't believe that it happened and i still can't believe it happened it's like being at thrown out of a club that you helped start everybody was drinking and doing more drugs than they needed to it probably looked worse for the manager to be fucked up than the band members to be fucked up, but it was still kind of like the pot calling the kettle black. Uh, and, you know, that makes a certain amount of sense, but, you know, at some point, it's hard to say you're not there. Who knows? Who knows how it all went down, but it started to change things for sure. 
So then in June 1987, Please to Meet Me came out. And as I said, this was the first album of theirs I ever boned. It's their first without Bob Stinson. It was essentially uh, recorded as a three-piece because Stinson was still in the band, like, in, I think, maybe the first session. And that's when they fired him. So they recorded it as a trio. You know, there's some other musicians listed. So this peaked at 131, sold 300,000 copies. It was produced by a guy named Jim Dickinson, uh, who had produced bands like Big Star. And if you listen to the album, this is the one that has Alex Chilton on it, which is all about Alex Chilton and Big Star. Uh, They recorded it in Memphis. It's the first album of theirs that wasn't recorded in Minneapolis. If you look at the cover, one of my favorite things, you know, it's a handshake and a real shiny gold watch, fancy looking hand, and then a hand wearing ripped up clothes, and the hair wearing ripped up clothes is Paul Westerberg. It's also where their, their substance abuse actually peaked, even without Bob Stinson. Because all of a sudden they, you know, were on a major label and now they had cocaine instead of just cheap, scuzzy domestic beer. Uh, and they got into a bit of a dispute with Twin Tone, who they thought was licensing their records overseas and then not paying them. And they got it in their head that they didn't want that to happen anymore. So they essentially went to Twin Tone Studios, stole what they thought were the masters, and then went and tossed them in the Mississippi River. They weren't. They weren't the masters. They were the safety masters, but it's still very replacements-esque. One of the one of the interesting things in Color Me Obsessed, I forget who says it, unfortunately, is that the notion that Westerberg would have liked all of his previous albums to disappear each time a new one came out, so people were only listening to the current one and only taking that as it was, which is a guy currently recording a solo music podcast. Uh, clearly, I'm glad that's not the case, but it's an interesting way of thinking about music. You know, I tend to try to put everything in context when I hear it. Uh, it's, it's actually an argument I have with the guy I mentioned before, Mario, about how we listen to music. And I think he would be much closer to Paul Westerberg and those notions than I am. But it's still an interesting way. And it's it's a dynamite album. It's still probably my favorite. It's between that and Tim, really. But it's got Skyway and Alex Chilton and Can't Hardly Wait. And we'll, we'll talk about these songs in a bit. But it's, you know, Red Wine and IOU. And it, it was my starting point with them as a band. I don't know that it's the best one because it's just so different from Sorry Ma or Stink or even Hootenanny. Uh, or even Tim, really. Like, all their albums are a little bit different. But this one is where they start. The, the last three are a little bit closer to each other than they are to the first three. So after... Please to meet me, you get Don't Tell a Soul, which came out in 1989. It was recorded in L.A. at Cherokee Studios with Matt Wallace producing it. It was the first album with Slim Dunlap on guitar as well. It sounds like an album that came out in 1989. It sounds like something that, you know, it's a little bit overproduced. It's a little bit overmixed. It doesn't have that same vibe to it, to the sound at least. Yeah, so they don't like the mix. And... In the last year, they released a the original mix version of it called Dead Man's Pop. And I, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but after doing all this research, I think I'm going to pick it up because I'd like to listen to it and see what, what it's all about uh, and put the two side to side, but I haven't had time to do that yet. The album feels like a bid at mainstream success. It's not the most popular 
album was sort of the older fans of the band, although the, the real diehards find something in all of these albums. It had their only top 100 single with I'll Be You, which peaked at 51. And look, I'll admit it, I, I like the album a lot. I like their later stuff. And it's, it's a good album. It's a different sounding album. And I'm curious to hear the, the original mix. But when it came of age in the era it came out, like, you know, it came out when I was in high school and just getting into music. So that sound doesn't necessarily bother me. I didn't grow up hooked into the, the indie scene in the same way as I was in later years. So yeah, I, I like it. And then a year later in 1989, they came out with All Shook Down, which is to be their final album. It was originally going to be a Westerberg solo album, and they convinced him to make it a replacements album. And there's lots of session musicians on it. Tommy Stinson, Chris Mars, Slim Dunlap all had parts, but it doesn't doesn't necessarily feel like a replacements record. It's still it's got good songs. It's got you know Merry Go Round on it, and and all these other pretty terrific tunes. But it doesn't doesn't feel at all like a replacements record. It does feel very much like a Paul Westerberg record. Uh, it was recorded in L.A. with Scott Litt producing. Uh, it's also very sad. It doesn't sound like, like Westerberg was in a good place when this album was recorded and written. And he wasn't. He was having marital problems. And he was never the happiest guy to begin with. And it, it really comes through on this album. But it's still worth listening to. And it's still got a lot of good stuff on it. So not too long after that, the band broke up for good in 1981. They had a farewell tour of sorts. And their last concert ended with each of the band members leaving the stage and handing their instruments to Roadie, their you know, individual roadies, who played you know, the last couple of notes of Hootenanny. And then that was that. That was the end of the replacements. They got back together for a series, series of shows in 2012 and 2015, thereabouts. They put out a thing called Songs for Slim to help raise money for, for Slim when he had cancer. But yeah, so that's the discography of this band. And it's you get from this early punk record to this very emotional, I don't want to say it's a breakup record, but it's got that kind of vibe, this hard-drinking depression record at the end. And you go through this, it's, it's almost, it, they, they sum up the 80s in a lot of ways for people who weren't, you know, whenever you, whenever you go back and you see, you know, pictures of the eighties, there's always somebody in a headband, leg warm, shoulder pads. But most of us were just, you know, walking around in boots and sneakers and jeans and, you know, looking like normal everyday people just trying to get through this weird decade filled with drugs and the threat of nuclear war and huge giant changes. And, the replacements were a big part of that for a lot of people. It manifested in their live shows, which are basically known for being baffling and chaotic. Like if they showed up and it was an all punk crowd, they would do country covers to piss people off. Or, you know, if the crowd looked kind of country, they'd play all punk. They were drunk all the time. Uh, one of Bob's most famous performances had him playing naked, peeing in his shoe and throwing into the crowd. You know, they would fight, they would bicker, they wouldn't finish songs, they would just play a bunch of crappy covers, but they played them with a plum. You know, they'd switch instruments. There's a, there's a live album called Live at Maxwell's that came out fairly recently that kind of captures this a little bit. And then there's another one which is harder to get a hold of, which is 
was released on a tape. It was a bootleg from one of their shows and with a lot of covers and stuff on it that came out around the time of, uh, I think, between Let It Be and Tim that people, I, I haven't heard it. I'm going to try and listen to it on YouTube later or something, but it's supposed to be pretty interesting and really kind of get a feel for them. But that was what you got with the replacements is you, when they had it going, they could be the best band in the world with the most energy and you know the most in-your-face connection and other times they would just be stumble drunk, bouncing around. You know, they hadn't slept. Tour van broke down. You know, they were famous for finally making it to these New York shows that Jesse Mallon was actually at. And just barely playing. You know, they had one in front of all these record executives at one point where they had to be their best to really to get this contract. And then they just played like crap and didn't give a shit. But that was the whole thing, and it was real with them, is that they didn't give a shit. They just wanted to do what they wanted to do. It wasn't about making money, or the, you know, they were, they were happy to have it when they had it, but, you know, they always talk about how the band kind of constantly shot themselves in the foot, or every time they, you know, were going to reach for success, they would stop reaching and do something stupid. But that was kind of what made them who they are, and made them what they were to their fans. They were chaotic and lovable losers or however you want to say it. There was, you know, I forget what the quote was, but it's something like beautiful trash. And for a lot of people, that's, that's what they needed to be. And it's for them. It's what they needed to be. And even when they wanted to stretch their wings a little bit, they didn't necessarily know how. So yeah, so you end up with this band that means so many different things to so many different people that they are exactly what they look like they are. You know, there was no artifice. There was no anything with them. They were perfectly what punk kind of wanted to be, but not always was. They're an interesting band. And they had a rivalry with Husker Du, who was much more of a hardcore band. And they were kind of bratty, too. Like, if Husker Du was going to play five nights at a venue, they would want to play seven or something like that. So... So yeah, so that's who the replacements are. And my, you know, I talked a bit about my relationship with them. Like I said, I was working backwards through Paul Westerberg's solo stuff to find them. And uh, my brother, interestingly enough, loves Husker Du. So our, our familiar relationships have some of that rivalry to it. Uh, so my friend Mario, I keep mentioning like Soul Asylum more than both of them. So who, who knows? They're an interesting band. It's worth reading though some of those books I've mentioned or reading up on them. Because as much as I've talked about their history, it doesn't come close to what's out there and what they did and how they affected people. I mentioned this movie, Color Me Obsessed. And some of the people in that are like George Went from Cheers and the Goo Goo Dolls and all these bands are in it. You know, not just Husker Du or the neighborhoods show up. They had a little bit of influence on everybody, and you can certainly hear it in the Seattle scene, and half of the 90s bands were essentially trying to be the replacements. You know, all those bands you love kind of came from this one. They're, they're definitely one of those progenitor bands, and worth seeking out. If you haven't listened to them, I, I would go back and do it. It's worth doing it. And In fact, a good way to start is with my mix. All right, so we're at the portion of the program where we talk about the mix itself. Took us a while to get here because they're a pretty interesting band with a big history. So, like I said, this mix is 10 song mix. You can find them on Spotify or if you go to 
shoutingstreet.com, there's going to be an individual link for each episode of this podcast, and those will have the links to the Spotify account, or you can follow me on Spotify, I think. I'm still learning how to do all that stuff, but it's definitely available. So anyway, so when I first dropped this together, it was 29 songs, and we, we cut it down to 10. We I cut it down to 10. This one was much harder than the first two episodes, which were hard, but getting the replacements into 10 songs, even just my favorite songs, is not easy. Because as I said, this is a band with eight albums, and I like all of them. However, when we get down to it, not every album is represented. Tim, Please to Meet Me, Let It Be, and Don't Tell a Soul, the only albums represented on my final 10-song mix. So, purists and bigger fans of this band than I am, and I, I really enjoy them. I'm sitting here looking at all eight LPs as I record this are not going to like this mix, but everybody's mix is going to be different. So with a favorites mix, this is where we are. So the final five cuts in order are Aiken to Be, which is a song I absolutely adore. I used to listen to it a lot when I would go for walks. It's a real emotionally honest song, and it, it reminds me of some people I know who don't know how to express their inner creativity and their inner who they are and kind of bottle it up, and it always makes me a little bit sad, and this song really gets into that and expresses that feeling. Next cut was Androgynous, which feels, I mean, even just reading these off feels like heresy to me. Androgynous is a better song than some of the ones I've kept, but it's just the songs I end up listening to a lot. Androgynous is off Let It Be, and it's a wonderful, great song. It's the song of theirs that most often gets stuck in my head, but in the end, it didn't quite make the cut. Kiss Me on the Bus from Tim is next, and Kiss Me on the Bus is one of those that might be, you know, one of their top songs of all time, and I love it and adore it, but I, I, it had to, it was tough to cut. Uh, after that was Nobody, which is another song I like a lot. It's a good pop rock song. It came out at a time and sounds like a time when I had my share of romantic problems and it clicks with that and it sounds like that. So when I hear it, it takes me back to those places. I, I'm a rock and roll guy, so you know I love a good mope too as much as everybody. So it's one of those songs that puts me in that frame of mind a bit. Uh, and then, and I, this, this, I stared at this a long time and I probably... If I, I, I don't even know. I have no excuses. But the next one, the last final cut was Here Comes a Regular. And I absolutely adore this song. In fact, when I was in Minneapolis, I tried to drag my buddy Steve to the bar that this was about because I just wanted to see it. Uh, and I, I did that a lot while we were there. I dragged him down from, we were staying right next to the Target Center. And we walked all the way down to Electric Fetus. And, you know, I went over to, was it First, First Street, Seventh Street Live? I forget the name of the app, but the one with all the stars on it. And I went and sought out the replacement star and that venue because I just wanted to see it because I knew it was part of the lore here and part of um, Minneapolis scene. And, I, you know, I have a zillion pictures of the different stars outside the building because it's it's a venue and... They have these silver stars with bands who've played there written in them. And it's it's just a neat concept, but it's a 
fairly famous venue and I had to see it. Same with Electric Fetus, which is a famous record store. I didn't end up taking them to the bar while we were there, but I thought about it. All right, so the mix. Here we are. The first song on the mix is, and probably most people could have guessed this if they know the band, is Bastards of Young from Tim. Bastards of Young is everything I love about the replacements in one anthemic song. It's just a big, loud... He starts it with this primal scream and then gets into these lyrics of of this generation that's lost. And, you know, I'm a member of Generation X and I understand that feeling. And it's just the guitars are great. The vocals are great. Everything is great. It's a great song. Even the video is cool, which is they, you know, they had this chance to get on MTV. And as part of their contract, they had to make a video. So they just shot a video of this speaker for the entire length in black and white. And at the end, it comes over and kicks it over. So even the video is cool. There's a Jesse Mallon cover of it. It's this real slow down kind of piano version that I like. I mean, I just, there's, there's no, nothing bad about this song. Hell, there's a movie I love called Adventureland. First thing you hear is, you know, screen comes up, it's black, and you hear the, those opening guitar chords, and, you know, and then, you know, the scream, and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to like this movie, and boy, boy, did I, if you haven't seen Adventureland, go see Adventureland, it's good, and if you're listening to this at this point still, you'll like the soundtrack. So from Bastards of a Young to number two, we get to Nevermind from Please to Meet Me. I don't have a lot of deep things to say about this song. It's just a great fucking rock and roll song. It's just good. I love everything about it. I love the the loud quietness to it. It's put it on my car and I just want to jam, you know, the stereo up to 15 and blow out my eardrums and scream along to it. It's not even a screaming along song, and it's it's funny. Uh, they talk about "Please to Meet Me" not really having an anthem, and it's it's not really an anthem, but it's a as close as "Please to Meet Me" gets, I guess. So, uh, following that is also from "Please to Meet Me," which is Alex Chilton, which is another great rock and roll song. It's part of you know what really got me into the band. Hell, I used to like to play it in rock uh, rock band, the video game where you play drums and fake guitar and stuff and sing along and I used to love playing Alex Chilton and I couldn't even believe it was in that was how I got into Big Star I mean it's that that song was a lot of the progenitor for me for the replacements so it it had to be here and it's it's just a good rock and roll song too after that is I Will Dare from Let It Be it's the lead track on Let It Be Peter Buck played lead guitar on it actually and I used to listen to it over and over and over on the headsets at borders when i was working as i mentioned in the, the music desk i'd have that on i'd just be sitting there rocking out to i will dare while customers were wandering around me and buying not that for the most part but it's a good song it's it's a great album opener it sets the tone and just the lyrics are amazing it's so personal but playful and sad all wrapped up in the same point and it's just a great it's a great mix or a great song rather and if you had to listen to one replacement song it would be the one i would recommend you listen to either that one or the next one which is number five halfway through here is can't hardly wait can't hardly wait is off please to meet me it's the song that inspired the movie can't hardly wait so it plays over the credits too 
which is part of why I ended up picking up the albums. Like, can't hardly wait. I know that. And I had never really listened to the song and I, it's, it's slower than some of the other ones on here. And it's just, it's a, it's such a good pop rock tune that it gets to the heart of so many things emotionally and I don't know, spiritually, whatever, however you listen to music, this is one of those songs that tickles that place in me where a song will just start speaking to me and I'll understand it on a, you know, kind of an emotional level that maybe I don't really hear or listen to a lot of things on. But even the line, Jesus rides besides me, beside me, he never has any smokes. I mean, come on. That This guy's a genius. This is the Bob Dylan of pop rock Midwest alternative in Westerberg. And it's just, just go and just read the lyrics to it. Even if you've never heard it, read the lyrics to it and then listen to the song first. And it's just, it's a perfect rock song as far as I'm concerned. So also from Please to Meet Me, I mentioned this album was going to be a little bit overrepresented, is Skyway. And Skyway is a soft, gentle song that's about the Skyway in Minneapolis. When I first heard it, I didn't know what the Skyway was. I In my head, I guess I thought it was kind of like a monorail or something. Because it's, you know, there's the line in it, it doesn't move at all like a subway. Uh, and then when I got to Minneapolis and realized what it was, I was a little bit blown away, which is it's a series of connected tunnels through buildings that's above ground that's a way of getting around the city when it's too cold to walk out on the streets. And there's restaurants and stuff in there. It's it's kind of like a an open-air mall, or not an open-air mall, but a, a weird extended, not food court, but I don't know, it's, it's interesting. The, the underground city in Montreal is kind of the same thing which is a way of getting around these cold cities without ever having to go outside. And when I was in Minneapolis and trying to get in touch spiritually with this band, I put that on my headset, the song, and I walked around the skyway and just tried to get a feel for it, which is something I do when I go to cities. I'd like to, there's a band I love from there, you know, I want to listen to the music that they made in that city and try and feel closer to that band or get an idea of what it was that they were talking about or, how they felt and trying to really sort of more understand where this stuff came from and what they're talking about. And with Skyway, you know, I feel like I did a little bit get an idea of what was going on with that song. And I, and I love the song, you know, and I'm walking through it and it was cold as hell when we were there, you know, walking through this and there's homeless people wandering around and some flurries in the air. And I, I just feel like I touched that place that I was looking for, like, I feel like I got what I was trying to get out of that with that song and in that city. So obviously the song had to be on the mix. We're going to follow that up with Unsatisfied from Let It Be. Uh, this also plays in Adventureland. It plays it a little bit later in the movie. I used to listen to it a lot on my way into work on my commute too, which is maybe not the best time to listen to a song called Unsatisfied. It's an all-time classic. It's about exactly what it says. It's about having things, but life not being what you hoped, things not being what you hoped, being unsatisfied with the world and your life and how things are. And what a more universal and understandable idea and concept in rock and roll. I mean, that's that's what it's all about is growing up in these places and, and wanting to be other places and just not wanting to settle and not wanting to just be whatever you are, and always wanting to be more, and always wanting to live a little more. 
And that's what Unsatisfied's about. And it's perfect. It's a perfect song. Follow that up with Little Mascara from Tim, which I isn't necessarily one of their hits or one of the songs I actually hear get talked about much, but I love it. It's a similar theme to Unsatisfied. It's about disillusionment or settling. And a lot of their music covers that. And you know, when you know, I used to, I worked at a tech company for 15 years and in the situation where maybe you're not necessarily where you want to be, these songs speak to you and you, they get into you and they get under your skin. And Little Mascara is this big kind of bombastic rock song with this little small core of just wanting something else, wanting to not be safe, wanting to be something else, ho- hoping for more. And that's what Little Mascara is about. It also has the the funny, for me, moment where I was, it was playing in the car when I was driving somewhere with a friend of mine. She looked at it and said, are you listening to a song about mascara? And the guy actually got kind of interested in the song because fan of makeup. Probably going to my <laughs> weekly trivia night, but it's a great song. Following that up is one from Don't Tell a Soul, which is Darlin' One. This was the closest I came to, to cutting instead of Here Comes a Regular. And look, Here Comes a Regular is a better song. I understand that. But I just love this song. It's, it's kind of haunting. Again, it's from that place where when you hear these mu- this music when you're a teenager. I didn't hear it when I was a teenager, but it's in that vein of that music I heard and got into that, that opened my eyes to what music and rock and roll and could be. And it taps that same spot hits that button for me of that kind of music that, you know, doesn't get made anymore. So when I hear it, I just, it's just a great rock song, which I keep saying about all these, obviously is a favorite list, but it tickles me in that, that one spot where 14 year old me was first learning to rage against the machine and feel sad and speaks to that person. That's, that's still deep within me. And then you've probably guessed where we're going to finish. Maybe you haven't, I don't know. Number 10 is Left of the Dial from Tim. It's just an all-time great rock song. It's about Left of the Dial as a turn, you know, talking about college radio stations and places that were further down the dial from the bigger stations and the places where they were playing different music and, you know, where you might have heard the replacements. And in my mind, it sums up kind of everything cool about the replacements and about the kind of music that I was looking for and I, I was looking for now and not as well known, it's not as polished, it's way down there left of the dial where where you got to go looking for it and you got to want it to find it. And once you find it, and boy, does it does it change things and does it, it do everything you want. And that's what left of the dial and Tim and the replacements as a whole did. They are rock and roll. When I think of everything that's cool and exciting and different and gets me going about rock and roll, it's the replacements. You know, they're not my favorite band for sure. We'll talk about my favorite bands and stuff. But when I talk to somebody about just the idea of cool or the thought about what's really exciting and what gets me going about music and what what I always wanted to be growing up and who I, I emulated, it's these guys, even without knowing it. You know, there was, a, there was a comic called Steel Town Rockers that I loved as a kid that's about a trash band from some poor town that, you know, they're living in their parents' basement and they don't know where to go or what to do. And I was enthralled with that idea and that other people out there were having that experience. And that's what the replacements are. So for me, that's everything cool is the cover of Let It Be, 
where they're sitting on this this roof drinking warm beer and not even really paying attention to the camera and there's a baseball trophy in the window and that's what it was always about for me and that's what it it was about for the replacements and I can connect with that and, and I'll always connect with that you know obviously what's cool is different changes in every generation but for me it's always going to be that notion those four guys on that roof on this album where they don't care if it sells a million or 10 they just want to play that show where people come up and they're like hey what do you got for us tonight and they're like well we don't even know until we start playing i think about it when i was a kid we took a road trip cross country my mom my brother and i and we went through minneapolis and this would have been 86 so probably right around the time tim came out and we had known my mom's minister in Connecticut, a DJ from New York, had come to the church. And he was the first person that ever asked me what my favorite band was. And at the time, I said the Cars, uh, because I wasn't really ready for the question. <laughs> you know, nobody had ever asked or cared. I don't know that the Cars were ever my favorite band, but certainly at the time, they had some of my favorite songs. So we, we were driving cross-country, and he said, if we get to Minneapolis, let us know. And we'll shout out to you on the radio. And he did. So we're driving my first time through this city. And this rock and roll DJ, I don't even remember what he played. I think it was the Cars. He played this song. So in my mind, I always associated Minneapolis with rock and roll. And I like to think that he knew who the replacements were. And maybe he played it, maybe not. It wasn't a college rock station. Deep down, my big association with that city was always rock and roll. And here it is. It's where the replacements come from. That's it. That's my story. That's Minneapolis, Minnesota for me. And deep in the, the, the frozen north and the tundra, you, know, you think more about football and stoicism, produce this ramshackle bunch of drunks who played just the right brand of rock and roll to speak to a lot of kids who didn't know who they were or where they were going or what everything was about, but knew that it could be a little bit better. And when they heard the replacements, it was.